Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, Monday, the 19th of February, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Carol Lockard and Jeff Cassett. Here's Carol with our first story. Thank you, Jeff, and hello, everyone. On the front page of the Quad City Times, Show choirs wow the audience. Area schools gather in Davenport for competition. This article is by Thomas Geyer. Davenport's Adler Theater became the scene of fierce competition Saturday as hundreds of singers and dancers and musicians took the stage for the Davenport Central Great River Show Choir Invitational. It was a day filled with intense 15- to 20-minute programs whose rhythms varied from rousing, pounding beats to soft ballads. It left the performers, singers, dancers, and band members and stage crews out of breath and sweating, but always smiling. The event featured 18 show choirs, with three in the prep division, four in the treble division, and 11 in the mixed division. But as Chase Shoemaker, director of Bettendorf Surround Sound, explained, show choir is not just about competition, it's about growth. Shoemaker said, we're not here to just beat other competitors, although that's obviously a part of the competition. What we want to see from our students is continual growth every week and how much they can put into the show from the beginning of the season when the competition starts to the end of the season. Everyone is always working to get better to make the team better, he said. Every week they just fight hard to create something that takes it to the next level. The students in Bettendorf's show choirs bring in varied experience, including some who started show choir in middle school, Shoemaker said. I am so proud of these kids, he said. These kids have gone through a lot in our district, especially following COVID. We used to have three show choirs in Bettendorf, now we have one. Bettendorf show choir member Tyler Fink, 18, explained, being in show choir means long hours of learning and practice. Fink said, our practices start in August. The directors are planning the next year's routine even before the school year ends. We have summer camps. We practice for three hours every Monday and Thursday. And we sometimes have weekend rehearsals. We have clinicians to come in and work with us and the choreographers and the directors where it's a longer day. Fink said he works at tanning a, a tanning salon in addition to his school and show choir duties. Making it all work comes down to good planning. He said you really have to make proper use of your time. You really have to plan out everything accordingly. Bettendorf's Kaylee Wolf, 18, is one of the band members and plays trumpet. It takes a unique approach compared to other organizations like marching band. She said, the style is different from other band playing because we have to be really loud and then really quiet. And we have to be sensitive to the singers so we don't bury them. So it's difficult. It's totally different from marching band, and you have to practice and learn the style because it's different from other things that you play. It's also a family affair. Most of the choirs don't have just students at stage crew members. They have the kids' parents helping out. 
Council Bluffs Lewis Central High School had the dad posse, the dad posse, with 25 men there to help. Other teams had an army of dads as crews, too, and they all helped each other setting up and tearing down stages. Dad posse member Chris Moore, whose children Kylie, 18, a senior, and Cameron, 16, a junior, are, are each in the Lewis Central Corporation. We try to be quick and efficient so they can stay on track, they said. Moore said the family was running this week because Cameron also is a wrestler with state wrestling in Des Moines earlier this week. Thomas Clarkson of Johnston, Iowa, said his son Ethan, 17, is part of the Johnston High School innovation and got started in show choir in seventh grade. Ethan has loved it ever since. Clarkson is one of about 25 Johnston dads who helped setting up and tearing down the stage sets for both junior varsity and varsity show choirs. Show choirs a lot harder than it looks, he said. They're constantly changing things as, they, as the year goes on, looking to see what's working and what's not working, and making tweaks to the program, Clarkson said. After each show, they get a critique from the judges. Most of the judges are good for feedback, telling the choirs what they can improve on, but also what they did really well. The show began at 8 a.m. Saturday and continued well into the evening. As the day went on, the crowd at the Adler got bigger as everyone seemed to want to see the performances. And though it was a competition, everyone cheered and supported their rivals. James Riva, assistant director of Lewis Central High School Corporation, said that each show runs 15 to 20 minutes. The brainstorming and planning for a show starts almost immediately after the show choir season is over. Riva said our head director, Kevin Palu, starts with an idea or a theme for a show. Sometimes an idea can start with a song you really like. So over the summer, we will pick the songs we want to do, and then we'll send those off to be arranged by someone who arranges music so that we can have it for our four-piece or eight-piece show choir, and then that's attached with all the band scores, too. Charlotte Moore, who's 18, a senior at Lewis Central, said to learn the songs, we have a vocal retreat rehearsal for a few days where we learn all the vocals for the three songs that we go on to choreograph with the choreographer in August. Trumpet player Addison Wainwright, 17, also a senior at Lewis Central, said the band will practice the music first and then, once they have it down, we'll begin work with the stage performers. Given the changes in tempo and what's occurring to stage on stage, Wainwright said, playing can be tough. She said, you have to work on it. Make sure you're watching the director. We don't want to be louder than the singers or not loud enough during dance routines. It's tough to find that happy median, but you try to follow the dancer's energy. It takes a lot of practice and hard work to make the pieces come together. Riva said that he played football and performed in the show choir. A show choir is harder, he said. <laughs> Jeff? Here's an article of interest from yesterday's uh, Sunday Quad City Times. DeWitt to add housing. <clears throat> Vacant insurance building become new apartments. An empty insurance building complex is slated to become dozens of new apartments in downtown DeWitt. Home to Iowa Mutual Insurance for about a century, 
The multi-building facility will be remodeled into 53 market-rate apartment units in a $16 million project aided by state, federal, and local financing. Officials hope the new market-rate apartments offer a greater diversity of housing options for the town of 5,500. The goal is to attract more people to the city's downtown and provide more housing for the region in a building that otherwise would sit vacant. The project is planned to include 12 studio, 27 one-bedroom, and four two-bedroom units with rent ranging from about $800 to about $1,600 a month. Construction is expected to be completed by spring of 2025, according to Bush Construction, which is leading the design and construction for the project. The project to remodel the building has been in the works since 2019, when insurance company Encova announced it would discontinue operations into it, and the building went up for sale. But the pandemic and delays in securing a housing and urban development loan pushed back the timeline for the project. Although DeWitt grew slightly between 2010 and 2020 censuses, the Clinton County as a whole shrunk by about 2,000 people and 200 housing units in the last decade. About 79% of residences in DeWitt are owner-occupied, a higher share than in the larger nearby cities of Davenport, Bettendorf, and Clinton. Iowa Mutual, an insurance company headquartered in DeWitt, got its start at the turn of the century in its founder's home to insure rural residents from fires and other catastrophes. The oldest part of the building was built in 1924, and the newest and largest addition was built in the 1970s, according to county land records. The 2017-18 in 2017-2018, Iowa Mutual sold its business to Encova, and business leaders in DeWitt began to worry. This building used to employ 300 people or so in its heyday, said Greg Gannon, the board chair for of the DeWitt Chamber of and Development Company and chairperson of Crossroads Unlimited, a private development group in DeWitt started in the 1980s after the farm crisis. It's a great economic engine, but business was declining and it was getting relocated elsewhere. So... We were nervous about that as economic developers. Then we learned that Encova was discontinuing their operations in Duet, Gannon said. First, we were very concerned about the loss of jobs, of course, but secondly, the building. It's right in the heart of our downtown. So, Crossroads Unlimited started brainstorming, but it didn't have the financing to complete a renovation project on its own, Gannon said. Bush Construction approached Crossroads Unlimited with the idea to turn the structure into housing. The group decided it would invest in the project and raised capital from 12 more community investors. Iowa Mutual Lofts LLC bought the property in 2021 for $850,000 from Iowa Mutual Insurance Company. The state of Iowa, too, awarded millions to the project 
in tax credits, including $1 million in workforce housing and $3.2 million in state historic preservation tax credits. U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is providing the project a $5.4 million loan for the project. Bush Construction CEO A.J. Loss said the HUD loan application was initially denied, but the group appealed the decision and won the loan. The city of DeWitt chipped in, too, with tax increment financing for the project. It all culminated Friday in a wall-smashing ceremony in which investors, construction officials, and elected leaders took turns with a sledgehammer to swing at an interior wall slated for demolition to commemorate the upcoming start of construction. With the building's historic status, Bush Construction is charged with changing as little of the exterior's historic nature as possible. In an effort to repurpose vacant historic buildings, several projects across the state have been awarded similar tax credits to turn properties into housing. For example, the state awarded tax credits in the same round as the Iowa Mutual lost to a project in Newton, Iowa, to turn a former Maytag company plant into 70 apartment units and 50 hotel rooms, and another in Waterloo to turn a fire station into conversion uh, to commercial space and upper story apartments. In Davenport, recent high-profile project renovated the downtown call building into apartments. It requires a lot of reconfiguring to refit an office building to residential space, Loss said. The layout of an office building is very different than the layout of, an, of apartments, <clears throat> he said. Every single apartment has a toilet and a shower and a sink. There's a lot of plumbing work that gets uh, that's got to happen. So we start by basically demolishing anything inside the building that isn't historic. And then we start laying out new walls to establish the apartments, then running the plumbing and the HVC, the electrical and all the walls. And after a year or so, we'll be done with construction and people will live here. Carol? Thank you, Jeff. Um, and also from yesterday's paper, two charged in connection with overdose death. Also by Thomas Geyer. Two people have been charged in connection with the October overdose death of a 25-year-old Bettendorf woman, Bettendorf Police Chief Keith Kimball said. Lucas Matthew Seitz, 33, of LeClaire, and Nicole Danielle Tucker, 33, of Davenport, are charged in Scott County District Court with one count each of involuntary manslaughter. The charge is a Class D felony under Iowa law that carries a prison sentence of five years. Seitz and Tucker also are charged with one count each of possession with the intent to deliver less than five grams of fentanyl and possession with the intent to deliver less than five grams of meth. Each of those charges is a Class C felony that carries a prison sentence of 10 years. According to the arrest affidavits filed by Bettendorf Police Chief Sergeant Joshua Paul, at 1.45 a.m. October 14, 2023, Bettendorf police were sent to 1138 State Street, Room 17, for an unresponsive female. 
The address is that of the City Center Motel. The woman was taken to the hospital and placed on life support. She died three days later on October 17th. Present at the time of the overdose were the woman's boyfriend, Sites, and a person living in a nearby motel room. During an interview with the victim's boyfriend, police learned the victim used fentanyl and would rarely smoke methamphetamine. The boyfriend told police that the victim was not in possession of any narcotics and he contacted Sites to obtain either heroin or fentanyl, according to the affidavits. The boyfriend arranged an Uber driver to take Sites from the motel to meet with his supplier of opiates. Sites was interviewed several times during the investigation and stated that the boyfriend contacted him looking for heroin for his girlfriend, whom Sites had never met. Sites contacted his main supplier who put him in touch with Tucker, the affidavit state. Tucker agreed to sell Sites opiates. Sites obtained a ride to the city center motel where the boyfriend gave him $100 to purchase heroin or fentanyl and to pay an Uber driver. Sites purchased what he believed to be heroin or fentanyl from Tucker for $40, the affidavits state. When he returned to the motel, he gave the drugs to the boyfriend. The boyfriend then gave the drugs to the victim. The boyfriend told police the victim appeared to be under the influence of opiates based on her demeanor. He then observed the victim turn blue and that she was not breathing. The boyfriend attempted to save the woman by giving her multiple doses of Narcan and performed chest compressions, according to the affidavits. Tucker was interview interviewed once during the investigation. Tucker told police that Sites had contacted her looking to purchase opiates. Tucker was in possession of two, quote, bad batches of drugs possibly, quote, fake dope. Tucker stated she had purchased these for herself and they did not have the desired effect, so she resold them to sites in exchange for $40 to recoup some of what she had spent on the drugs. She met with sites at about 10.30 p.m. October 13, 2023 in the area of West Street, West 31st Street and Western Avenue in Davenport, according to the affidavits. Text messages and phone calls between Sites, Tucker, and the victim's boyfriend confirmed the transaction between Sites and Tucker occurring on October 13th at about 11 p.m., the affidavit state. Sites texted the boyfriend's home and said, We're good to go on our way back. See you in a bit, brother. The morning of the overdose, officers performed a consent search of the room of the person living in a nearby hotel room. Officers seized six-tenths of a gram of meth, 55 one-hundredths grams of foil with burnt liquid sludge of fentanyl, a hypodermic syringe with a liquid mixture of methamphetamine, fentanyl, and n etanazoline, no, something like that, <laughs> according to the U.S. Department of Justice website. The latter drug, the pyrolidino Etanitazine is a high-potency synthetic opioid that's been linked to overdoses, linked to overdoses across the United States. Officers also seized a spoon with burn marks, a cotton swab that contained the same mixture of drugs as the liquid mixture and drug pipes. All of those items were removed from the victim's room after she overdosed, and were taken to the neighbor's room next door. The affidavits state. 
The toxicology panel of the victim showed she had in her system methamphetamine, amphetamine, and phenylpropylamine in her system. The initial toxicology screen did not test for fentanyl or heroin. According to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, phenylpropylamine was at one time used in over-the-counter and prescription cough and cold medications as a decongestant and in over-the-counter weight loss products. It has been banned for use in the U.S. due to increased risk of hemorrhage stroke, hemorrhagic stroke. Both Seitz and Tucker were in court Saturday morning for a first appearance on the charge. Magistrate Eric Severide scheduled a preliminary hearing in each of their cases for February 27th. Seitz and Tucker each were being held Saturday in the Scott County Jail on a cash-only bond of $100,000 set by Severud. And now we'll go back to Jeff. Hilmers to enter the Astronaut Hall of Fame. It was 1980, and Colonel David Hilmers was leading a small command of Marines in Japan when a bulletin came across his desk. NASA was hiring astronauts. With the opportunity right in front of him, he figured it was worth a shot. I always felt that, like, astronauts were really cool and going into space would be really cool, but I never pictured myself doing that, he said. It was one of those things that I really didn't think I had a great chance of being selected for, but I might as well. It was like entering a sweepstake. Hilmers decided to take a chance, and after a lengthy process, the DeWitt native went on to enjoy a 12-year career with NASA, flying in four missions. In June, he'll be inducted into the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation's 2024 U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame, joining more than 100 other astronauts honored in the exhibit at Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex. Before he became a colonel and an astronaut, Hilmers grew up in DeWitt, where his father worked as a florist. A practical man, his dad steered him away from his dream of becoming a doctor and encouraged him to study mathematics when he went off to college at Cornell in Mount Vernon. I think I was like many college students at the time, just trying to enjoy the college life, he said. I think I was just kind of going along with the flow. During his four years as a Ram, Hilmers played football, wrestled, and was on the track and field team. In the back of his mind, and the minds of many other young men at the time, was the uncertainty of the Vietnam War. In 1969, the government introduced a lottery where men, like, uh, or where men could determine how likely they were to be drafted, with the lower numbers having the highest probability. Hilmers drew lottery number 20. I was relatively certain that once I graduated from college, I'd be drafted, so I preempted everything by joining the Marines my junior year, he said. The program allowed him to complete all his basic training the summer before his senior year. Upon graduation from Cornell in 1972, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant. 
By 1978, word got out that NASA had begun hiring military members to be astronauts, but Hilmers was in school pursuing further degrees and was focusing on completing flight training for the Marines. Space was really in my big plans for the excuse me, space wasn't really in my big plans for the future, he said. Adding the thought of wanting to become a doctor lingered in his mind. Then in 1980, Hilmers found himself overseas for the third time, this time in Japan, where he decided to take a chance and apply to be an astronaut. After sending in his application, it was forwarded to the Department of Defense, that's the DOD, and then put in the hopper with other approved applications. The process was long and slow, causing Hilmers to think he'd been cut. I knew the chances were pretty low, and I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, he said. Eventually, I got a call, and they asked me to take the physical. The next thing he knew, Hilmers was at the Kennedy Space Station in Houston for his interview. Still, he didn't think space was in the cards. I felt that interview that week uh, going, there are so many really, really, really qualified candidates that I just didn't really feel like I had much of a chance. But it was a great opportunity, he said. Months went by, and the call Hilmers was waiting for finally happened. They asked if he was still interested in becoming an astronaut, and his response was immediate. That was it, he said. It was an experience I would not have to have given up for anything in the world. Throughout his 12-year career, he flew four missions for NASA, the first aboard Atlantis on a classified mission for the DoD in 1985. Being able to see places and seeing the globe as a whole, being able to see the continents and the countries going by, not in the way that you learn about in geography class, but actually seeing them out the window and seeing the earth is a ball rotating under you. It's quite a remarkable experience, he said. In 1986, tragedy struck for NASA when the space shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds into a flight. The shuttle program was put on hiatus. By 1988, NASA was ready to try again, and Hilmers boarded the STS-26, the return to flight crew. The discovery flight lasted four days, one hour and 11 seconds, according to NASA. That was special in a way because it brought America back into space, he said. The crew launched a satellite that would allow shuttle com- uh, shuttle, the shuttle communicate to communicate with the team on Earth the entire time. Otherwise, astronauts had to rely on ground stations and there could be large gaps in the communication stream because of the distance. Hilmer's third mission was classified, but took him further north and south than any other U.S. mission ever went and ever will go, he said. I can say that we got to see more of the world than any other U.S. astronaut at the time. Astronaut uh, Sonny Carter had died in a plane crash, but was scheduled to participate in a mission that fall. Hilmers was asked to take his place and agreed so long as NASA knew he was not giving up on his physician dreams any longer. Four weeks after the scheduled launch, Hilmers was accepted into the Baylor College of Medicine, 
But in January of 1992, he took off on his fourth and final mission. A science mission, Hilmer said the crew set up a space lab in the back where astronauts performed experiments with fruit flies and studied plant growth. Six months after his return, Hilmers was able to retire from both NASA and the Marines and finally start medical school. In the 30 years since his retirement, Hilmers has kept busy as a professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at Baylor. He now resides in Australia, where he also works as the chief medical officer for an Australian-based NGO, Hepatitis B Free which was founded by his wife, Dr. Alice Lee. This summer, Hilmers will make it back to the United States to accept his nomination into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. He said his story is not very interesting, given he never had childhood aspirations to go to space, but the colleagues who nominated him for the honor eventually, or evidently, feel differently. Interesting or not, Hilmers said he will never forget the career he had 30 years ago. He's happy his co-workers didn't either. I realize it doesn't change anything that I did while I was an astronaut, but I feel honored that people I work with and people I knew, even people I never met, decided I was worthy to be in this group, he said. It's quite an honor, and I feel very fortunate that I'm remembered after all these years. Carol. Thank you, Jeff. And since it's time for obituaries, we have several that were printed in yesterday's paper that uh, have not been put on the air. So we'll first start here with um, from Eldridge. Janice Catherine Willis. 87, of Eldridge, passed away Thursday, February 15th, 2024, at home. Funeral services will be held Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, at Halligan McCabe DeVry Funeral Home, with visitation being held one hour prior to the service, beginning at 10 a.m. Per her wishes, cremation rites have been accorded. Private burial will take place in Davenport Memorial Park. Memorials may be made to Genesis Hospice or the Alzheimer's Association. Online attributes may be expressed at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. And that again, if you missed the first, was for Janice Catherine Willis. Ann Ramirez, May 15th, 1926 to February 15th, 2024. How do you sum up 97 years of Anne Ramirez, an incredible woman who shared so much joy and love with this world in a brief obituary? In one word, impossible. She left this world on February 15th, leaving behind her family who adored her, but reuniting with her beloved husband, children, parents, and siblings. A massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 on Wednesday, February 21st, at Sacred Heart, Cathedral in Davenport. The Mass will be live-streamed by visiting Anne's obituary at hmdfuneralhome.com. Burial will be in the Rock Island National Cemetery. 
Visitation will be Tuesday at the Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home from 4 until 6 p.m. with a prayer service at 3.30 p.m. Additional visitation Wednesday from 9.30 until Mass begins at the Cathedral. Memorials may be made to Sacred Heart Cathedral. Beverly Alice Welchen was born March 9, 1941, to John and Hazel Fonger of Moline, Illinois. She married Charles Jennings in 1955 and had four children, Angelina, Arthur, Crystal, and Sandra, then later divorced. She was later married to Robert Welchen in 1970 and later adopted Angel in 1981. She always wanted to do everything she could to help others and decided to become a foster parent. During this time, she fostered three children, Aaliyah Rourke, Brandy Bradbury, and Levi Mature, McClure. Beverly later divorced Robert in 1989. A celebration of life is pending at this time. Jeff? Doris Marie Lee passed away on February 13th at the age of 100 after a brief illness. She was born, in, born on August 25th, 1923 in Mission, South Dakota, the youngest of nine children to Lydia and Martin Nittel, all of whom predeceased her. In June 1945, she married Jack Lee, who died in October of 1995. Together they had four children, Sylvia Roba and her husband Bill Roba of Davenport, Skyler Lee and his wife Lisa of East Moline, and Jeffrey Lee and of Nashville, Tennessee. All survive her. David John Lee died shortly after birth in May 1949. Also surviving are six grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Visitation and a memorial service will be held at Mor Moline Bethel Wesley United Methodist Church, 1201 13th Street in Moline, on Saturday, February 24th. Visitation will be from 1 to 2 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall, and the memorial service will be in the sanctuary at 2 o'clock. Please direct memorial contributions to the church. Robert, known as Bob Martin. Robert Bransell Martin, 90, formerly of Davenport, Iowa, died February 14, 2024, at Northcrest Retirement Community in Ames, Iowa, where he had resided since November 29, 19, oh, I'm sorry, where he had resided since 2021. Robert Martin was born November 29, 1933, in Davenport, to William E. and Carmela Branson Martin. He married Mona Cadle of Taylor Ridge, Illinois, on April 7, 1956. Services are pending, uh, and Ames Monument and a Cremation Center is caring for Bob and his family. Online tributes can be made at amescremation.com or 515-233. 3449, the Ames Monument and Cremation Center. Donna Udale. Donna 
uh, December 24th, 1946, to February 12, 2024. Donna Udaley passed away on February 12th after an extended illness at the Clarissa Cook Hospice House in Bettendorf. Donna was born December 22, 1946, in Hazel Green, Wisconsin, to Floyd and Irene Wheaters. She graduated in 1965 from Galena High School along with her soon-to-be husband, Dennis. They were joined in marriage December 26, 1966. That union produced one daughter, Tisha Balsari. Donna was an active participant in the Park View Women's Club in her early years. She retired from John Deere Law Department in 2001 as a paralegal, but stayed on part-time for several more years. After retirement, Donna enjoyed several activities such as traveling with her girlfriends and husbands to, her husband to different locations around the U.S., playing golf, and taking her chances at the local casino. A celebration of life will be held at 4 o'clock on Wednesday, February 21st at Elder United Methodist Church after with a visitation an hour beforehand. A light meal will be provided afterward. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Eldridge United Methodist Church, St. Jude Children's Hospital, or the charity of your choice. The family would like to extend its sincere appreciation to the staff at the Summit Bettendorf and Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House. Valerie, known as Val, Louise Pulsher. Valerie Louise Pulsher passed away peacefully February 9, 2024, surrounded by her family. She was born August 13, 1953, in Hot Springs, South Dakota, to the late Ernie and Eloise Pepson of Custer, South Dakota. April 14, 1973, Val married William Bob Pulsher from Egan, South Dakota. They celebrated 50 years of marriage in April of 2023. They had three children. Val held a variety of jobs in her life, a legal secretary, a teacher, um, and after leaving military life and finding her husband's military life and finding stability in Rock Island, Illinois, Val spent 20 years working for Case New Holland where she was known for two things, making sure the office ran as efficiently as any organization on earth, and two, telling everybody with an earshot, if it ain't red, Leave it in the shed. Um, online condolences may be sent to wheelandpresley.com. Jeff. Logan Jacob Howard Klein. With heavy hearts, we bid farewell to our beloved Logan Jacob Howard Klein who passed away at the age of 29, leaving behind a legacy of love and joy despite the many medical struggles he faced throughout his life. Logan brought an unparalleled brightness to our lives with his infectious smile and boundless spirit. Though nonverbal, his expressions spoke volumes, touching the hearts of all who knew him. He found immense joy in life's simplest pleasures, particularly his cherished iPad, beloved red balloons, the freedom he felt in the water while swimming, and a delicious bowl of vanilla ice cream. 
Despite the many challenges he encountered, Logan taught us invaluable lessons about resilience, patience, and unconditional love. He inspired those around him to appreciate the beauty in every moment and to embrace life with unwavering positivity. Services will be 11 o'clock on Monday, February 19th, at First Presbyterian Church in Davenport with a luncheon and ice cream social immediately following. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations are suggested to Hills and Dales, which offers programs, services, and equipment for individuals with special needs in the Quad Cities. May you rest in peace, dear Logan. Your light will continue to shine bright in our memories forever and always. And from Daytona Beach, Florida, Leon Cruz, 90, passed away January 27, 2024, at Daytona Beach, Florida, where he resided after retiring. Leon was born in Bennett, Iowa on August 8, 1933, son of Marjorie and Edward Cruz. He graduated from Tipton High School in 1951, served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War, graduated from UNI in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and taught in the Davenport school system until his retirement. He is fired by his sister, Vivian Schantz of Tipton, Iowa. Jean Marie Mom, age 90, 90 years young, of Long Grove, was called home peacefully on Tuesday, February 13th. Funeral service will be held on Tuesday, February 27th at 10 a.m., at Wirtz Funeral Home. Visitation will be on Monday, February 26, from 4 to 8 p.m. at Wirtz. Burial will be, the, will be following the service at Davenport Memorial Park. Memorials can be made to the American Cancer Association or to the McCausland Fire Department. Jean was born May 29, 1933, to Forrest and Louise James in Davenport. She graduated from Davenport High in 1951 and married the love of her life, Eugene Curly Mum, on December 8, 1951. Online condolences may be made to Jean's family by visiting her obituary at wirtzfh.com. Uh, from Long Grove, Jean Marie Mum. Jean Marie Mum, 90 years young, of Long Grove, was called home peacefully on Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Funeral services will be held on Tuesday, February 27, 2024, at 10 a.m. at Wirtz Funeral Home. Visitation will be on Monday, February 26, from 4 to 8 p.m. at Oh, at Wirtz Foreign Home. Burial will be following the service at Davenport Memorial Park. Memorials may be made to the American Cancer Association or the McCausland Fire Department. She was born on May 29, 1933, to Forrest and Louise James in Davenport. She graduated from Davenport High School in 1951. Jean married the love of her life, Eugene Curly Mum, on December 8, 1951. Online condolences may be made to Jean's family by visiting her obituary at www.wirtzfh.com. 
Roger Dale Drapo Sr., age 73, of Ogden, Arizona, passed away on Friday, January 26th, surrounded by his family. Mr. Drapo was born in Davenport on April 7, 1950. He worked and lived in Davenport for many years. He worked for Francie Paint Company and the Davenport Wastewater Treatment Plant. Before moving his family to Ogden, Arizona, where he retired from the city of Ashdown Water Department, he was a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Roger was laid to rest in Texarkana, Arkansas. There will be a celebration of life in Davenport at a later date for family and friends. The family would like to thank Lee Drapo for all the love and care she gave Dad and Grandpa during his illness. Betty Louise Thomas, <clears throat> age 98, passed away on February 15th at the Vistas in Bettendorf. A funeral service will take place 11 a.m. on Tuesday, February 20, at Wirtz Funeral Home. Betty will be laid to rest at Pine Hill Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to a charity of your choice. Online condolences and memories may be expressed at wirtzfh.com. Betty was born on June 18, 1925, in Burlington, to Beulah and Willie Alfred. Upon graduating from high school, Betty joined the workforce. She worked in a variety of jobs, including working for the FBI, Crescent Cleaners, and eventually John Hancock Insurance, where she spent 18 years. Betty was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Robert, and her son, Mark Thomas. And finally, Holly Beth Carlton, age 68, of Charlotte, passed away on Tuesday, February 13th, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Memorials may be made to the family uh, to the family or the My Love Light Foundation. Uh, online tributes may be expressed at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. This concludes the obituaries, I believe, and we'll go to Carol for Opinions. Okay. Um, this is from yesterday's paper. Suing person who requested public record is another misstep. So far, our 2024 wish for more transparency in Davenport City Hall is not going so well. Decisions to give the public less opportunity to speak during public meetings and to no longer live stream the public comment portion of the meetings continue to move the city in the wrong direction. And while these issues need to be addressed, a larger issue has emerged. Now the city is suing a member of the public who requested a document just so it can see if the document is public or private. The document, according to the petition filed Wednesday, is a September 15th letter from then-City Administrator Corey Spiegel to the mayor and the council documenting allegations of harassment 
and retaliation against Spiegel. The letter apparently includes Spiegel's demands for money to cover her damages in exchange for not suing the city. The Quad City Times filed freedom of information requests for all documents and emails involving Spiegel, former city attorney Tom Warner, the mayor, and the council months ago. The September 15th letter was not included in the city's response, nor was there any recognition that such a letter existed. What a shame. This is the letter that started the process that ended in early October, prior to the November 7th election, with a separate agreement that paid Spiegel $1.6 million. We think there's little doubt that this is a public record and should have been made available to all who requested it. But according to its petition, the city believes it will be sued under open records laws for not making the letter public, and it could be sued by Spiegel for making the document public. So the city has sued David Ezra Sidron, who requested the letter, asking the court to determine whether the city must make the letter public. On Saturday, the city sent a release saying it's not looking to recover anything from Sidron and prohibit him from engaging in any activity related to the city. Yet, Sidron must now defend himself for requesting documents. Instead of Sidron getting the document he requested, he will likely have to spend thousands of dollars on legal expenses just to defend his request. He has no recourse to have the legal expenses reimbursed by the city, even if he wins. That's not how a city should treat its people. Keep in mind that the council agreed to the separate agreement with Spiegel in private. Originally, city, former city attorney Tom Warner said the city didn't need to vote on separate agreements in public. He said the city only needed private consent by the council, which flies in the face of open meeting laws and good governance. Outside council thought better of it and advised an open vote which occurred in December of 2023. The city then voted to ratify on all three separation agreements, including those with administration administrative employees, Tiffany Thorndike and Samantha Torres, also for claims of harassment. The total payout to the three employees was $1,897,000. Warner, who retired in January, had signed all three agreements. Scott County resident Alan Dirks is suing the city, claiming it failed to follow open meeting laws in the handling of separation agreements. Back to today's topic of the Spiegel letter, however, which has us wondering why this letter was kept from the public. Iowa Freedom of Information Council Executive Director Randy Evans said the public interest in the letter outweighs Spiegel's privacy interests. We agree with Evans that the letter should be made public and suing the person who requested the document is a misstep. Our wish for more transparency in 2024 was not in jest. The relations between Davenport City Hall and the public are tenuous. From the handling of the building collapse, the separation agreements, not announcing the agreements until after the election, limiting public comments, and now suing a member of the public for requesting a document, the city needs to begin to rebuild the public's trust and confidence. Doing so will require a new direction. We urge the Davenport Mayor Mike Matson and council members to change the status quo and push for openness. Criticism can be uncomfortable 
but it comes with a healthy democratic process. Let the sun shine in. Jeff? Political success depends on effective TV and internet contact. This opinion piece authored by Don Wooten, who's former Illinois State Senator and a regular columnist for the Quad City Times. Wooten writes, Monkey see, monkey do. That came from my mother a few times when I wanted to say or do something justified by other people's example. I guess the phrase was apt. That reputed tendency in our simian relatives shows up in the synonym for imitate, to ape. Like our fellow primates, we tend to copy what we see. Parents may lecture their children about many things, but kids learn more from their actions than their words. Things can get interesting when we find behavioral influences outside the family. A compelling teacher can shape students' lives, often leading them into professions and modes of thought beyond family traditions. A good book can do the same. We often fail to recognize how entertainments subtly affect us, more in feeling than in reason. When silent motion pictures began to be circulated over a century ago, they proved to have a strong influence on people's behavior. When talkies arrived in the 30s, the impact was even stronger. An example I have often cited is a scene from It Happened One Night when Clark Gable removed his shirt. He was not wearing an undershirt. Sales of that clothing item dropped all across the country. Moviegoers adopted fashions, hairdos, and mannerisms from what they'd seen in films. Sitting in a darkened room, watching uncritically, audiences proved to be persuadable. Alarmed by this and a number of scandals reported from Hollywood's Babylon on the Pacific, the Catholic Church, abetted by Jewish and Protestant denominations, set up the Legion of Decency in the mid-1930s to monitor and rate films for moral and ethical content. Once each year, we were asked to, to rise to take the Legion's pledge on Sunday services. As local communities established movie censorship, uh, Lloyd Binford served for 28 years as movie censor in my hometown of Memphis, and voters agitated Congress to enact restraining laws. Hollywood reacted by censoring itself, lest Washington take action. That's why, in movies of that period, crime is always punished, virtue always triumphs, and married couples slept in twin beds. It is this persuasive nature of television that's made it an indispensable tool in Charles Koch's ambitious plan to subvert American democracy. His rallying of like-minded millionaires and superlative organizational skill has enabled him to take control of 23 state legislatures, pouring in money, staff, and media expertise to back pliant candidates. Iowa proved the most successful, with Koch-backed MAGA Republicans now in full control of its major state and congressional offices. All of which poses a question. If monkeys see and do, and humans feel and react, who is actually thinking?
That brings us to the end of the Quad Cities Times for today. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockhart. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.